Right, we're going to read from Philippians chapter 2 um, on page 1179 of your Pew Bibles, beginning at verse 5. Philippians chapter 2, page 1179, beginning at verse 5. In your relationships with one another, have the same mindset as Christ Jesus, who, being in very nature God, did not consider equality with God something to be used to his own advantage. Rather, he made himself nothing by taking the very nature of a servant, being made in human likeness. And being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to death, even death on a cross. Therefore, God exalted him to the highest place and gave him the name that is above every name, that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue acknowledge that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. The second reading comes from Mark's Gospel, which we've been reading for the last few weeks, and it's in chapter 8, beginning at verse 27, and you can find it on page 1012 in the Church Bibles. Jesus and his disciples went on to the villages around Caesarea Philippi. On the way, he asked them, who do people say that I am? They replied, some say John the Baptist, others say Elijah, and still others, one of the prophets. But what about you, he asked, who do you say I am? Peter answered, you are the Messiah. Jesus warned them not to tell anyone about him. He then began to teach them that the Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders, the chief priests, and the teachers of the law, and that he must be killed and after three days rise again. He spoke plainly about this, and Peter took him aside and began to rebuke him. But when Jesus turned and looked at his disciples, he rebuked Peter. Get behind me, Satan, he said. You do not have in mind the concerns of God, but merely human concerns. Then he called the crowd to him along with his disciples and said, whoever wants to be my disciple must deny themselves and take up their cross and follow me. For whoever wants to save their life will lose it. But whoever loses their life for me and for the gospel will save it. What good is it for someone to gain the whole world yet forfeit their soul? Or what can anyone give in exchange for their soul? If anyone is ashamed of me and my words in this adulterous and sinful generation, the Son of Man will be ashamed of them when he comes in his Father's glory with the holy angels. Thank you, uh, Stephen Jill. Yes, sir, I did notice what was played just before the service. Uh, let's pray together, shall we? Father, thank you for the Bible, and we pray that you would speak to us through your word this morning. For Jesus' sake. Amen. Well, this morning we've got um, 
the most important question anyone can ask. Who's Jesus? Now, you may think there are some really important questions in the world, for instance. So, uh, and you may be thinking, well, it couldn't be possibly be more important than what's the solution to the climate, uh, to the climate emergency or uh, what is the way that we can get rid of COVID for good. But actually, I'd suggest to you that this question, who is Jesus, is the most important question anyone can ever ask. In fact, it's so important. Why don't you ask yourself that question right now? And just say quietly to yourself what your answer to that question is. Well, why ask a question about, in his day, a relatively unknown peasant carpenter from an unknown little town in an unknown backwater of the Roman Empire. And that was all 2,000 years ago. Why would we want to know anything about him? Because we believe that the answer to that question, who's Jesus, will change your eternal destiny. And if you believe that he were just a peasant carpenter, or maybe you believe this morning that he just didn't exist then according to his words, you will spend eternity without him. And Jesus called that hell. But if you say, I believe he's the Messiah, I believe he's the son of God, God in the flesh, come to die for me and then raised from the dead on Easter Sunday, then you will start a whole new life. And a whole new eternity and a glorious future awaits you after you've died. So that's why that question, who is Jesus, is such an important question. Because in the end, everything hangs on it. And I mean everything. And I'm really glad to be speaking about this passage this morning. Um, I was asked if I wanted to have a a particular passage for this last Sunday. Um, I said, no, I just want to talk. I don't mind whatever the passage we get to going through Mark's gospel. I'll speak on that. I just want to speak from the Bible. And it happens to be this one, which, uh, frankly, if you're a preacher, is an absolute gimme, especially for your last one uh, as a vicar. So uh, who's Jesus? And the first answer that we see in this passage is this, that Jesus is the king. Just have a look at that paragraph, verses 27 to 30. Um, Now, as we go through, as we've been going through Mark chapter 8, we've seen there's a gradual dawning of understanding in the minds of the disciples. It's a bit like a sunrise. We're seeing sunrises. uh, Well, maybe not this morning, but... uh, uh, but it was uh, apparently the sun rose at 7.29 this morning. And if we'd been anywhere without clouds and rain and so on, we would have seen the eastern sky gradually lightening and changing color. And that's light blue and the, the orange and then the red and then that first peaking of the sun over the horizon and so on. Um, and what we're seeing is that the growth of understanding, the grasping of things. I mean, it took me three or four years. The disciples going at lightning pace here by comparison, but it was taking them quite a while, really quite a while, uh, until we get to this point where we see that they've actually got there. So, for instance, you look at verses 22 uh, to 26, you see this parable there, and it just it happens, it's the only kind of two-stage one we looked at it last week, and it's just a picture of the way of the dawning of understanding, of get, getting there gradually. 
But then in verses 27 to 30, we're at the hinge of, oh, there's the sunrise, that's nice. And uh, we're at the hinge of Mark's gospel. From now on, there are going to be fewer miracles. From now on, as we go through Mark's gospel, uh, the crowds will begin to disappear. There becomes a real focus on the disciples, and Jesus is heading to the cross. And he goes to this pretty remote place. Actually, Caesarea Philippi is the furthest north he gets. And this is on the way. This is on some dusty track, probably, as they're walking the 20 miles or so north of Bethsaida, where they've been, to get up towards Caesarea Philippi. And on the way, as it says here, Jesus and disciples, verse 27, went on to the villages around Caesarea Philippi. On the way, he asked them the most important question ever. Who do people say that I am? And they said, well, look at verse 28. Some say John the Baptist, others say Elijah, still others, one of the prophets. A bit like us saying, well, you know, some people say that Jesus Christ is, uh, is the son of God. Some say he was just a good man. Some say he was a miracle worker. And then Jesus nails them in verse 29. And he said, but what about you? What about you? Who do you say I am? And you can almost see him pointing at them, can't you? What about you? Who do you say that I am? You can almost see him pointing at us. Who do you say Jesus was and is? How about us sitting here this morning in BH? Well, how about us watching a live stream? How about us maybe watching a live stream in six months' time or whatever it would be, recording of the service? But how about you? Who do you say Jesus was and is? It's getting personal. It's getting very personal, isn't it? It's not about what your parents believe. It's not about what your wife believes. It's not about what your siblings believe. It's what about you believe. What do you believe now? It's not even about what I believe or the person sitting next door to you believes. It's what do you believe about Jesus Christ now? And Peter answers here, uh, you are the Messiah. That's a Hebrew and Aramaic word. The Greek word is Christ, as in Jesus Christ. And it means the chosen, set aside, anointed, empowered, liberator, king. Jesus the king. Now, of course, the Jews in Jesus' day were hoping for a Messiah, a liberator. They were an occupied country. They were under Roman oppression. But Jesus, a different kind of Messiah. Still chosen, still set aside, still anointed, still empowered, still a liberator and still a king. But not from Romans, no, to liberate his people actually from ourselves. And from the sin, the wrongdoing, the rebellion against God which enslaves us. Jesus, our liberator king, come to set us free from human sinfulness and guilt before God. As you might imagine, when uh, uh, you come to move and you've been somewhere a while and uh, uh, you kind of have a clear-out, one of the things we've found in the clear-out is the um, British history rulers, kings and queens of England. So here we are. And uh, it's got a list of the kings and queens of England, like these uh, people here. And uh, so you can see Edward I, 1272, Edward II, 1307... I'm tempted to get Clive Wilkins up because he can go through the whole lot with the dates. But don't worry, Clive, I'm not going to do that. But, uh, uh, but here we are, okay? Now, the thing about this ruler and those on the screen, or the, you know, the pictures on the screen, is these are kings and queens of Britain. And they have particular dates. 
It starts with uh, William the Conqueror, 1066, and William II, 1087, and so on. So uh, he was around for a little while, William the Conqueror, uh, in fact, 21 years, and he ruled over Britain. Jesus is different. He doesn't have a ruler with dates on and places, or a place, because he doesn't rule over one place. He rules over all places and all people of all time. So he doesn't have any dates either. Jesus has no dates and no place because he's the ruler of every place and everyone and every date. So he doesn't need a ruler like this. He's the ruler of everyone and everywhere and every place forever. You are the Messiah, full stop. No qualifications. You are the liberator king, full stop. Who's Jesus? Jesus is the king, full stop. That is it, the king. So why is it then tell them to keep quiet in verse 30? That's a strange thing. Jesus warned them not to tell anyone about him. Well, just think, what would have happened if, he had, if they hadn't kept quiet or relatively quiet? I mean, being a, a kind of um, a messiah figure in an occupied country is a fairly dangerous thing to be, isn't it? Ask Aung San Suu Kyi in um, Myanmar. Very dangerous to have that kind of position. Ask any opposition folks in other countries where there are perhaps more totalitarian, totalitarian states and so on. And uh, so if, if the Jews had likely started spreading this and so on, then uh, uh, there would have been a whole uprising. And the Romans, you can imagine what they would have done to sort it out, wouldn't you? That's why Jesus said, don't tell people, because I want to teach my disciples I need to go to a cross, but you've got loads more stuff you've got to learn yet. That's why Mark's gospel, the focus now, really begins to focus on the disciples and Jesus teaching them. That's the first thing. Jesus is the king, okay? No dates, he doesn't need them, he's the king for all time. No place, he doesn't need that either, because he's the king of everywhere. No people mention, he doesn't need that either, because he's the king of everyone. He's the king, full stop. Second thing is, Jesus is the king who came to die for us. Now, this is absolutely staggering, because immediately Jesus goes on in verse 31. He then began to teach them that the Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders, the chief priests, and the teachers of law, and that he must be killed. What kind of a Messiah is that? And then after three days rise again, what's all that about? And you know, just to make sure, he repeats it in chapter 9 and verse 31 and chapter 10 and verses 33 and 34. So as we go on, we're going to see Jesus say this again and again. And it's very hard to exaggerate how just how an enormous shock this is. It's a shock like this. The North and the South Tower on 9-11. It's a shock like that. And it's a shock when the South Tower collapses, and then about half an hour later when the North Tower collapsed. It's a shock like those appalling things then. You know, the, the Messiah doesn't die. The Messiah doesn't say, I must suffer and be killed. And what's all this about three days later I'm going to rise again? Uh, but there's no mistake... And don't be confused, because you look at the beginning of verse 32 here. He spoke plainly about this. He was perfectly clear about it. Peter didn't understand because he took him to one side and began to rebuke him. And uh, Jesus said, get behind me, Satan. Look, I've got to do this. This is fundamental. This is important. This is going to happen. And so Jesus rebuked him. 
but it's going to happen. Jesus is the king who came to die for us. Forty years ago, in January, on January the 14th, Washington, D.C., Boeing 737 had uh, crashed into the 14th Street, Street Bridge on the Potomac River. And there were 79 passengers and crew. Five were rescued, and they all tell the same story. Potomac was icy, big ice flows and so on going down the river, freezing cold. Very difficult to survive it. And the the same story is this. So those five people who were rescued from the icy waters of the Potomac on that day, every single one of them were rescued by a helicopter which lowered a rope and they were given the rope by a man in the water. And when the helicopter came back the sixth time, he had gone under and drowned while rescuing those five people. He gave his life for them. And Jesus gave his life for us. The Messiah who came to die for us. And uh, 700 and quite a few years before that, a man called Isaiah in our Old Testament described what happened on the cross. And he wrote this in Isaiah chapter 53. He was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. The punishment that brought us peace was upon him. And by his wounds we're healed. We all like sheep have gone astray. Each of us has turned to his own way. And the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. Jesus the King who came to die for us. And he was raised on Easter Sunday. He is alive today. And we can all live with him today and forever as our Lord and Savior. Have you ever asked him to be your Lord and Savior? I will guarantee that for some of us, whether we're here at home or watching later on, the devil might well be saying to you, there's no hurry. There's no hurry. You can just wait. Why not think about it tonight or next week? You're rather busy at the moment. Well, I want to say to you, don't wait till next, till tonight, next week or whatever. Do it right now. Okay? If you want to be a Christian believer, you can pray. Forget the rest of the sermon. Please quietly pray to him now and ask him to be your Lord and your Savior right here, right now. There's no time like the present. And don't believe the devil's lies saying, yeah, you can wait. It's okay. There's no hurry. That's a lie. Please don't believe that. If you want to do it, stop listening to me. Talk to the Lord Jesus now and tell him you want him to be your Lord and Savior. So who's Jesus? Jesus, the king. He's the king who came to die for us. And if you want him to be your king, just ask him to be your king right now. Next, third thing, and this is the last one. Uh, have you come to Jesus to die? So we've gone to verses 34 to 38 here, and Jesus is saying, well, in the Christian life, is a, a disciple is a follower and a learner, as Jesus, so us. So you look at verse 34. Then he called the crowd to him, along with his disciples, and said, whoever wants to be my disciple must deny themselves and take up their cross and follow me. Whoever, that's everyone. That's everyone who wants to be a Christian has got to do that. That's what it means to be a Christian. Verse 34 is for you. No exceptions. No exemptions. You're not special. 
in terms of I can live the life without sacrificial following of Jesus Christ. No, everyone who's a Christian has to do that, okay? Years ago, when I was an undergraduate, I met a wizened little old man called Charlie Mole. This is a picture of him. I, I wasn't an undergraduate that long ago. <laughs> um, uh, but he was a wizened little old man in 1975 when I met him. He had been the Lady Margaret Professor of Divinity at Cambridge University for 25 years. And he wrote this. People carrying crosses were people going to their execution. Jesus says, you follow me, you carry your cross. Being a Christian is not about uh, a few kind of minor adjustments to our everyday lives. This is fundamental. Um, and this guy uh, is Tom Wright. He used to be Bishop of Durham. And, uh, and he wrote this. Uh, about this very passage that we're looking at this morning. Jesus is not leading us on to, on a pleasant, so Jesus is not leading us on a pleasant afternoon hike, but on a walk into danger and risk. Or did we suppose that the kingdom of God would mean merely a few minor adjustments to our ordinary lives? Being a Christian is not about a few minor adjustments to our ordinary everyday lives. It's much more than that. Jesus says, take up your cross. Give everything. Here's Tim Chester. Uh, we know Tim Chester. We've read his books. And uh, he wrote this. Maybe you've made gospel choices, which mean you cannot afford the lifestyle of your neighbors. Maybe you have chosen to give your time to serve others rather than indulging yourself. Maybe you have served on a children's camp instead of going on a holiday or as a street pastor instead of being asleep in bed. Maybe you've taken on a draining pastoral situation. Maybe you've made choices that mean you face hostility. Maybe you speak for Christ even when it will harm your career or ruin your day. And in fact, Jesus says... In verses 35, 36. Well, look at verse 36. What good is it for someone to gain the whole world, yet forfeit their soul? Or what can anyone give in exchange for their soul? Well, that's an unanswerable question, isn't it? What good is it to gain the whole world, and yet forfeit your soul? Do you pay attention to your soul? Ever? I mean, these days, we're, uh, we're supposed to be, aren't we? Uh, uh, you know, we're told all the time to be uh, physically fit. And to care over what we eat. And we've got to look good, haven't we? We have great hair and great nails and uh, uh, great teeth and get them straightened up and so on. And, uh, uh, and all the rest of it. And especially since COVID times came, our, our, not just our physical health, but it's good, isn't it, that we can pay attention to our mental health without being embarrassed about it. That's good. But not so many people tell you to look after your soul, do they? Well, I am this morning. Please look after your soul. Don't forfeit your soul. Don't just swap it for something else. Don't let it just shrivel on the vine. Don't forget it. Keep it healthy. Feed it. And how are we to do that? Well, we'll do that. We'll take up our cross and we'll follow Jesus. 
We'll nourish our eternal relationship with him. We'll spend time with him and his people. We'll, uh, we'll study and we'll read. We have the massive privilege of having a Christian bookshop here. It's about the only one in the south of England now. It's just around the corner. Why don't we use it? Let's get amongst it. Get down there. It's not the advantage of having a Christian bookshop over getting something from Amazon is you can go down there and speak to an expert who will tell you what the best our books are to read. Do you read Christian books? Have something on the go all the time. Of course, get to church. And don't let it drift just because you don't have a vicar. <laughs> You've got to keep on coming. We live the way of the cross. Have you come to Jesus to die? Is he your everything? And if we're going to live the way of the cross, denying ourselves, taking up our cross, following Jesus, what will it look like? What would your car look like if you lived like that? What would your telly look like? How much of your telly would you watch? I mean, obviously the whole screen, but you know what I mean. And uh, um, what holidays would you go on? What about your bank balance? What would that look like? What about your social life? What would your diary look like this week? Are you coming to Jesus to die? So this morning, who's Jesus? Jesus is the king. Jesus is the king who came to die for us. If you come to Jesus to die. And if we're going to come to Jesus to die, we're going to follow him wholeheartedly. And I want to give you an illustration now, which I've used uh, many times in the last 35 years since I've been ordained. Once here, but a very long time ago. And, uh, uh, and then just recently, I was reading Ian Barclay's book, A Few Grains of Truth. And then I noticed that uh, not only the illustration is in this book, but also the backstory. And it's talking about wholeheartedly following Jesus and what it means, what it means for you and for me. And uh, I thought, actually, since it's, it's in Ian's book, why don't we get Ian to read it for us? So we were there this week, and I recorded him. With this, I finish, and I'll hand over to Ian Barclay. When working in the city, I would often meet my friend Bill Pickard for steak and chips in one of the cheap restaurants in Soho. Cheap because they served horse flesh, a fact unknown to us, but we enjoyed it with lashings of garlic and mustard, washed down with a bottle of wine. Towards the end of the evening, Bill looked at his watch and panicked. Pay the bill, I've got a rush. If I don't hurry, I'll miss the last train home. With that, he dashed from the restaurant, trailing his coat and briefcase behind him, calling for a taxi uh, at the same time. He managed to catch his train in Waterloo, he found a compartment with two other people in it and settled in a corner to read the book he was reading as he travelled up to town about the crucifixion. Um, one of the people in the compartment suddenly had a fit. Lying on the floor, his friend knelt to help him. The needy one was the American and he spoke to Bill and said, I'm sorry, this happens every day. We were in the Korean War together 
and I was wounded and left in no man's land, and this Brit came and carried me to safety. As we got to safety, a shell exploded beside us, and we both ended up in hospital, badly wounded. We were demobilized. I was sent home to America with my fiancé and job. Then I learned that this Englishman would never get better, and I gave up my um, fiancé and job to come and look after him. You see, he did that for me. There is nothing that I cannot do for him. By now the train had arrived at the next station, and the Englishman looked better, and his friend helped him to his feet, and they left the train together. After a few minutes, Bill returned to his book with the account of the crucifixion in his mind and the American's words ringing in his ear. He did that for me. There's nothing I cannot do for him. He suddenly put down his book, knelt in the carriage on its way through the night and gave his heart to Christ. He was the first man that I'd ever seen totally changed by Christ. I was yet to see many more. It was the same skin, but a different man inside. 